And like I said to you while you were watching it, you really have to suspend disbelief. Suspend all of your disbelief, because it is going to take all of it. So we just watched the 1997 Jonathan Mostow thriller road movie Breakdown, which you grew up on. It's like a childhood staple movie of yours, but which I had never seen, even though it seems like I should have seen and loved this movie years ago. I wouldn't say it's a childhood staple. It came out when I was 15, but certainly it got a lot of views during my teenage years, early 20s. It was just one that, you know, whenever it was on TV... I would watch it. It was something that if it was at the movies and I was waiting, you know, couldn't decide on the last movie. Yeah, Breakdown. Old Reliable. (laughs) (laughs) I think we all have, like, I have, like, thrillers like that when I was a kid that I just went back to over and over. Yeah. I loved Single White Female, The Good Son, Hand That Rocks a Cradle, Pacific Heights. I mean, I hadn't seen The Good Son until I think you showed it to me. And The Good Son's similar to Breakdown in that it exists with nightmare logic. doesn't have any real logic in it. But it's the kind of logic that makes sense if you're in a nightmare. You know, little things that you overlook or, you know, how the situation just gets worse and worse. I, I like movies that do that. And they did that a lot in the early 90s. And they spent a lot of money on these movies, weirdly. The road movie, the kind of desert road movie, was a very... Uh... 70s thing and then or late 60s 70s it was kind of the counterculture um and then it went away for a little while and then it came back in the 90s and they did all of these kinds of movies set in the desert like i guess thelma and louise was one of them breakdown oliver stone had a film out around this time called u-turn so yeah there was a whole bunch of them that came back this film's a little odd though like it's not quite a regular psychological thriller from that era sort of a bit of a mishmash of a couple of different genres. Sometimes it's dual, then sometimes it's the fugitive, then sometimes it's like really vicious and nasty. I mean, it's never as sustained the tension as dual, but I think that for a kind of B-movie vehicle for Kurt Russell, it does a spectacular job. Yeah, he's so good in it. Yeah, he's really good in it. Um, and I think one of the reasons that this movie was kind of etched in my memory is because I love J.T. Walsh. He was in a lot of movies throughout the 80s and 90s, which were big. I don't know if you remember that he was in Hannah and Her Sisters. Uh, he was in Needful Things, the Stephen King adaptation. That was my favourite Stephen King book at the time. He was in The Negotiator with Samuel L. Jackson. He was in this one. So he was in a lot of... He was in A Few Good Men. He shot himself in the head at the end of that movie. I remember that, yeah. I think he makes such a good villain here, even though his name is Red Bar. Yeah, Red Bar. What the hell is Red Bar? (laughs) I mean, that's one of the things about this movie that I guess it probably didn't dawn on me, because I haven't seen it in quite a while now, but it didn't dawn on me until I watched it this time, just how nasty it is. I mean, there is no remorse whatsoever in this movie. And typically, you get a reason that people are doing things that you can kind of get behind. Otherwise, it veers into the realm of horror. Um, And this sits somewhere in between, where you don't really get a legitimate reason for killing multitudes of people. And it's not a horror movie. So what you've got here is just a bunch of pure psychopaths. Yeah, it's like The Wicker Man, but for Midwest white trash America. (laughs) Yeah. Honestly, I loved watching your reactions 
while we were watching the movie because I loved that you had said, what, the whole town is in on it? This whole town of like 50 people is that everybody's in on it? The police are in on it? And what the film does is it sets that up to be kind of a red herring. That's the MacGuffin of the movie is that the town is in on it because they're not. Kurt Russell is very annoying. <laughs> you know, even just little things like when the, the cop, who's, who's a lovely cop, says to him, were you and your wife having a fight? He's like, how dare you ask me that question? It's like, that's a completely reasonable question for a police officer to ask. There's no reason to take it so personally. Just even little moments like that felt so hammed up. And they were really trying to make this point of he is, you know, civilized, middle class, turns complete animal by the end of the movie. The way that Kurt Russell plays him is with real uncertainty about whether or not he's going to actually be able to do this. And that's what I really liked is that his fear and his um, lack of confidence was sort of naked on his face. And I think a lot of other male actors wouldn't have done it that way. Kurt Russell is not the cool, the thing Kurt Russell here. He's like a, a dad. He is a dad, yeah. Like, he's yeah. got the belted chinos and his <laughs> shirt, his polo shirt tucked into. And it overhangs. He doesn't know how to work on a car. He wants to diffuse a situation at a post office, uh, sorry, at a service station with words instead of yes. when this guy's clearly coming up and aggravating him. So he, he's very much a dad. I was expecting a B-movie on the level of Hand That Rocks the Cradle and Single White Female, which are also ludicrous, but they're not out into orbit ludicrous the way this is. They don't end with like a Mack truck hanging over the edge of a bridge where a guy has fallen a thousand feet. It was so, so overblown, <laughs> but lots of fun. Just I, I thought it was going to be a little more sedate than it was. Did you know some of this was shot in Tasmania? It was not. It was. I mean, how do you think this compares to something like Duel? Duel is less over the top, obviously. <clears throat> it's also more one note than this was. I think, obviously, Duel's probably more cohesive as a film and, and less laughable as a film. When you say one note, I assume you mean that nothing much else happens outside of truck versus car. Yeah. And I think that works to the film's favour with Duel. I think that's actually one of the strengths of that movie is that it doesn't try to do too much. Although there are those horrible um, internal monologues that Dennis Weaver has in his head and he plays a real pansy like Kurt Russell does in this movie. A movie that came out not too long afterwards was Roadkill or Joyride, I think it was called in the US. I thought Roadkill was uh, masterclass cinema when it came out <laughs> when I was 16. You really did. I still think it's a good movie. I think it's a good teenagery version of this sort of movie. Hmm. Interesting. The film doesn't have a lot of sequences of um, traffic action with the truck. No, not too much. I guess uh, the idea of uh, someone being in a smaller vehicle versus someone being in a larger vehicle is, I guess, where this starts and where the power imbalance is that allows this to happen. Yeah. And also some of the mystery. It reviewed quite well and it looks like it made a decent amount of money. But, it, I mean, it, it made its money back. It wasn't like a massive hit or anything came at like that point where uh, Kurt Russell movies seemed to be coming out every second week. And a lot of them were really good, like, or, or at least were big, noticeable hits. Like he had Backdraft, he had um, Stargate. Mm. I know like the year before this, he did Escape from LA, which was the sequel to Escape from New York. It was interesting because Kurt Russell wasn't into direct-to-video at the time. You know, he's made a bit of a comeback now, but he did go through that time where, through the, you know, 2000s, the start of the 2000s, where he didn't really make much that was successful. He was sort of going the way of Bruce Willis and Nick Cage up until Pig. And he's certainly, I think, 
stopped himself from doing that. I think our standards were different in 97, though. You can feel like this is like a, a, a B movie that's been given an A movie production budget. Yeah. And they were doing that back then. You know, there was room in the market for these kinds of films to get costed up and made. When um, we first started it, you said you didn't like his wife, who's played by Kathleen Quinlan. Do you still not like her? <laughs> Actually, I thought she did really well in this movie. She sort of won me over when she comes back at the end. I think she's a good actress. I just don't find her very nice to look at. And actually, she was the mum in the remake of The Hills Have Eyes. And mm. I feel like now that she's that age, I can appreciate her. Because even in Breakdown, she looks that age to me in a weird way. She just doesn't look like a... She goes with Kurt Russell, even though I know it's horrible to say because they're probably the same age. It's just something about her face, though. Look, I agree. They could have got a different actress, but it wasn't really about that role so much. It was a Kurt Russell movie. It was a Kurt Russell vehicle. They portrayed the relationship between them quite well. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed that aspect of it. I bought that he was out there risking life and limb on multiple occasions to try to find her. This makes Fatal Attraction look like a great film. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I always think when I see these movies that they are aiming for a film that will be nice and easy to go to watch at the lowest possible cost they can achieve. Yeah. Uh, because, I mean, I've, I've just looked it up and there was a $36 million budget and that surprises me. Because <laughs> I would have thought maybe you're looking at 15 to $20 million, somewhere in that range. But $36 million seems a bit excessive, but then I guess movies in the 90s, they were pushing it a little bit. And the film has no real through line. You can feel that they're just trying to make everybody happy. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, one scene is a horror scene. The next scene is an action setup of him going down the rapids. The next scene is a revenge thriller where he's, like, kicking his face in. So you're emotionally all over the map with this movie. It's just giving you everything. And... It's not giving it to you in any kind of rhythm that feels normal. It's it's massively uneven. Yeah, it is. Um, but, you know, somehow, somehow it's passable. It is a movie that is wholly enjoyable to watch. And it's like 90 minutes. It's just short, sharp. Um, it's not going to tax your brain. I like the bit, though, where Kurt Russell, at the end of the movie, he goes to the barn, the farm of Red Bar and uh, gets into his house with a gun, points the gun at Red. And then his kid comes in, and his dad's saying to him, you know, just pull the trigger. And, you know, it's very much like, a, I guess if you were that age, 10 years old or whatever he is, and you had a gun in your hand, I mean, you would listen to your parents. And I thought that that was really well done. It was a good because scene. Because there's, why would, why would he listen to Kurt Russell, this nobody who's pointing guns at his parents, who he, he, he doesn't know anything that they've done that's bad in his life. So to, to him, they're his heroes. And so as soon as the mum says do it, yeah. before the kid has a chance to think, Kurt Russell knows that that'll be the turning point. Mm -hmm. And so then he makes that move and gets the gun off the kid. So all of that was really well done. And there were moments where um, the instincts of Jeff, Kurt Russell was spot on mm. in terms of how long he waited before he moved. I don't think Jonathan Mosto really went on to direct much else. I know he did one of the Terminators. I thought the way it was shot and directed was really good. A lot of long, long lenses. So what long lenses tend to do when you shoot from far away is that they play with your depth of field. 
So there were a lot of scenes, and one of them that really struck me this time was when their car breaks down for the first time on the street, and the car that they've had the run-in with previously at the service station stops there, looking at it on the hill, and then they cut back and they see the truck coming towards them, which is Red's truck. And it's shot in such a way that it looks like Red is just going to drive right through them. Like, did you notice that? Yeah. That's a long lens shot from a distance, um, zoomed in, which is giving that effect of a real lack of distance between the vehicles. And then when they get up closer, they are obviously shooting it with a wider lens. And that allows us to see that, oh, no, there is enough time for that truck to break. But it's those little moments that add just a little bit of tension here and there without being without crossing into the territory of jump scare. Which goes with this whole idea about it having a kind of paranoid logic. Yeah. I did like the surprise of JT Walsh having a family, having a son. It made him even more menacing. That scene, he, he walks into the barn, he gets up the top. There's all these boxes full of the remnants of his other victims. How much did you think Billy, when he first came in, and he was acting as though he was uh, mentally disabled, and he was giving the information to Kurt Russell's character while he was washing the car? How much did you think, well, this is just the most obvious, like, mid-90s action film thriller trope that could ever be employed (laughs) by a movie? I did have it then, and I also had it when Kurt Russell was on an oversized mobile phone speeding down a highway at an inappropriate speed and talking frantically on it. I was like, this is the ultimate 90s moment. Yeah. Somebody's making a call and they're driving too fast. Yeah. That was one of the things. I didn't realise that car phones were and mobile phones were quite that big in 1997, that they would have two full boxes in the barn full of mobile phones, these oversized <laughs> flip-down, pull-up-the-antenna mobile phones. Well, because they only went for wealthy people. Mm, that's like, true. You know, yeah. He, they made him a victim because his car looked so good. You were paying attention, Luke. Thank you, I was. I saw the whole thing. <laughs> well, that was a quite a romp. It was. Thank you very much for um, letting me select it. It's okay. I was, I'm glad you selected yeah. it. It's a lot of fun. I haven't seen it in years. I was like, wait a minute, he should be thanking me. I realised halfway through that sentence I had nothing to thank okay, you well, for. Okay, well, thank you for selecting Breakdown. You're welcome. And this ties into that time that I started an episode of Celluloid Junkies by saying, what would you do? If I said our next episode would be 1997's Breakdown. (laughs) (laughs) And here we are. We have an episode on Breakdown. And here we are. We just watched it. You know, we need to at some point do Trespass because that's the other movie that you're neurotically obsessed with. I think the other one would be Suspect, wouldn't it? We're never doing that one, Your Honour. They're all one-word movies. One-word movie titles. I need to not pick another trashy movie next time because otherwise people are going to think I've got bad taste. You're going to pick all these high-end movies. Like I did Elizabeth, which is, you know, a respectable film, but you do High Noon, which is a classic. (laughs) And now I've done Breakdown, so I hope you are going to trash it up next week. Maybe. We'll see. Have you got a movie picked? No. Okay, well. No, I don't. That's good. Think about what I've said and go with God. Okay, I'll do that.